This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, when it comes to climate change, I'll admit that financial regulation isn't the first thing that I think of. And yet your column this week is on some newly proposed disclosure requirements on climate change from the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission. I think the, the justification for these rules is that they will make comparability of anti-global warming efforts or anti-climate change efforts of different companies a lot easier. Can you tell us a bit more about the, the proposed requirements and give us a clue as to their efficacy? Well, it turns out the function of the SEC is actually somewhat in de- doubt now and somewhat in debate. The original conception was pretty clear, is that what you were supposed to do is to require disclosures by companies of all material information that would influence the decision of whether or not to buy, hold, or sell a stock, and in what quantities. So it was designed for the public by way of investors. In the more modern discussions, including that which is done with respect to the SEC report, they say this is also to inform the public. And they don't mean by that the investing public, but they mean is the general public who may or may not have concern. Now, when the general public gets this information, it often translates into political action, uh, saying, in effect, if the threats of global warming are as large as the critics say, what we need to do is to change the actual direct regulation of what's going on. And so what happens is this report is now going for these two markets. And this leads the dissenting commissioner uh, on what she says, Heather Pierce says is, look, I mean, I did not think we were a sub-branch of the Environmental Protection Agency. Show me investor protection and I'll agree with you. But when you do that, you have to remember the decisions are made at the margin, as every always are in life. We already have disclosure forms that require things that are material. There is no question that at least under some circumstances, the impact of global warming or some other natural event or a hurricane or whatever it is on prices are going to matter. And if so, they do. And you want to change some kind of position, you may be duty bound to make an appropriate disclosure, certainly before you make an acquisition or a trade of some sort or another. So her question is, if we know this information and we're trying primarily to deal with investors, what's the net gain from the information that we get relative to the cost of its its acquisition and distribution. And her answer to that question is, given the kinds of information you want, uh, she says it's very weak. And the simplest way to put this is we already have an enormous amount of information about the total amount of carbon dioxide emissions that take place and the various kinds of temperature changes that take place after and consequent upon those sorts of emissions. And these are not allocated to particular firms, uh, but at least they give you some sense of the overall urgency. What she says, in effect, is if you try to allocate it with respect to individual firms, what you will get is an extremely difficult, detailed portrait, which you can't make any sense of, uh, because people make stuff themselves, they buy it from other parties. Even if you just take it in terms of delay, uh, these reports take at least eight months, six to eight, maybe 18 months to prepare. By the time you publish them, it turns out there are two generations of technological innovation that have taken place between you and somebody else. 
Uh, the basic rule of thumb in any business is if you want to figure out what's going on, assume that 10% of whatever it is that you're measuring is going to be changed if you wait a year. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about technological stuff or whether you're talking about a customer list or a tax roll or an admissions count. So the information is going to be old and it's going to be stale and it's going to be done at such a particularistic level that it doesn't give you any information about the particular aggregates. So she regards this as essentially confounding information, not material. The majority says, in effect, that once you get this information, we could rationalize it. And since many investors are concerned, as indeed they are concerned with global warming, this will allow them to sort of change their position one way or another. One example of that is Larry Fink and the BlackRock Company are always talking about creating some kind of disclosure type system. Uh, But the issue that still remains is exactly when it's going to be put into effect and how much good it would do. And at least when it deals with these disclosure issues, my general position is uh, uh, very detailed disclosures are essentially of little value and wholly within the standard framework of the uh, SEC and its disclosure norms. You don't want to sort of fill the form with all sorts of details. What you want to do is to concentrate on the central features, like what's going to be oil prices in a year or what's going to be the number of wells that we have to shut down or refineries that we're going to have to close. You can get pretty good information on that. And indeed, when Exxon had not supplied that information a couple of years ago, the pressure was pretty intense that eventually it did update its statements with respect to its facilities and revalued the oil supplies that it had on hand. That seems to me to be the sensible way in which to do this. I think what we're doing here is going a bridge too far. I want to step back and ask about you know the, the bigger trend of, I guess, maybe even agency-imposed rules on climate change, right? You're talking about the SEC. Our Hoover colleagues have focused a lot recently on the Federal Reserve getting involved with climate change rules. I want to know where this trend is coming from. I mean, I'll volunteer another. I wonder if it's just going to be partisan and you vote in, you know, Democratic side, you're going to get this, Republicans, you're not. Um, the On the national security side, the national security strategy during President Obama's uh, administration talked about climate change as one of the big national security dangers. And that was gone when uh, uh, President Trump's national security strategy came out. So is it is it just political? I mean, is that what we can predict for the future? Well, nothing is just political. Remember, if you look at the constellation of scientists, there are many more who tend to think of this as an urgent problem over an indefinite time of sense than those people who think, oh, carbon dioxide, this carbon dioxide, that. Um, they're much more sophisticated in what their denials or their cautions are about. Uh, but what happens is, yes, it turns out this has been big. So, for example, in the Obama administration, climate resiliency has been thought to be extremely important. Uh, what happens is when I wrote about this, I said, you know, we have a bunch of hot spots in the world. You know, Ukraine is one of them. And if this thing is going to go up and smoke in one way or another, it's going to happen within the next six months to a year. Any long term program that you put into place is going to take place five years from now. Do you really think that climate resiliency through what the military does is going to be more important than the utter carnage that will take place if a war happens in the short run? Well, we've had that war in the short run. And, you know, John Kerry, who is a real alarmist on these things, says, I want everybody when they fight these battles to recognize that climate change is really the most important issue. I mean, he's been ridiculed and he's been ignored, uh, but it is it's important to realize that the total chaos that you're talking about under these circumstances do have enormous levels of emissions that are taking place. Uh, my lesson from this is it means that you better have a strong defense budget so that people will be deterred. 
I am worried about the fact, as are many people, that the Chinese will see in this episode a kind of confused indecision by President Biden, which means that they could take it as a scene that the United States is not going to resist with force if they try to cross the Taiwan Straits. And they will then make the further judgment that you cannot furnish supplies to Taiwan at the same rate you could do it in the Ukraine. So we could overwhelm them from the ground before they could mount any kind of resistance. I think those issues are there. On the lending side, I have very much the same action. I've actually done some research on that. And the way in which this thing seems to work is you find some indigenous groups which regards the development of a particular project as being harmful to its interests. And what happens is you persuade the banks that they should veto funding these particular projects until all the demands of those groups are satisfied. And the great difficulty about this is these groups are sometimes right, but very often they're wrong. And what they do is they have highly exaggerated estimates of the harms that are going to come take place. They want to impose the veto rights, and then sometimes they'll bargain them away. There was no question, for example, when I worked on the DAPL pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, which goes from South Dakota uh, down to Illinois, the Indian tribes tried to hold out with respect to everything and anything that was going on. And frankly, they were wrong. It turns out this was a better pipeline. It was a safer pipeline than all the other pipelines that existed. It didn't pass that close to the reservation. The likely of an undetected leak that would involve thousands upon thousands of barrels of oil, I think, was utterly negligible. It held it up for many years. And even now, there's still litigation going on, not because the oil is going to be there uh, in the wrong way, but because there's going to be a controversy about whether this thing should stop. And when you start looking at the EPA regulations, legitimate objections, in fact, in some cases, if deeply felt, are grounds for slowing down a project. And we know that the Biden administration is intent upon that. I regard all this as extremely dangerous. And a lot of it is your assessment of what do you think of the alternatives? And, you know, fossil fuels have, are 80% of the energy supply. Uh, they have huge advantages in terms of your storability and your transferability. All the other things that you're trying to work about um, become successively more unreliable as they regard themselves as a larger part of the grid. Uh, they have real maintenance problems in trying to do that. They have disposable problems. They, in fact, require the construction of rare earths and other kinds of mining things to get to the renewables. So my my position has always been on these kinds of cases. Uh, what you don't want to do is to shut down uh, the fossil fuel system until you're confident that you have an alternative system in place and that the risk of making that calculation incorrectly, given all the confusion that's going on, is very, very high. Now, there are many people who disagree with me and they want to sort of make a more rapid transition uh, to solar and wind than is currently done. And I think that that is probably a mistake, but there's a lot of uncertainty associated with it. But in any event, I think most people would start to agree, and this is what the uh, Commissioner Pierce's point was, uh, the EPA is not the SEC, that if you want to do these things, do it through direct regulation. And here's the rub, and I'll just make one observation now. The best way I think to do this is to have everybody report their own emissions. And then what you can do is to figure out the interactions between two or more companies. But if you tell company A that it has to figure out what the sources are in company B who supplies them and 20 other companies, this is an enormously complicated cost inquiry, joint allocations, uncertain information, trade secrets in this stuff aligned. It's just nuts. What you want company B to do is to basically talk about its aggregate output of various pollutions relative to the supply of goods and services that it supplies. And then the first company or the government could take it into account when they figure out whether 
contracts with that particular provider could take place. And then if you try to use third-party arrangements, even more remote, it just becomes more acute. So the correct system of regulation is do it at the source, have every single source regulated carefully, but have it regulated only once. And what the SEC is trying to do is to basically use this as a system of comprehensive regulation of a grid, where in fact, if you decide that this is so complicated, the great temptation is going to say, well, if you can't solve this problem, you can't make the right disclosures. If you can't make the right disclosures, then you cannot file a new application for additional funds because you haven't met your requirements. So instead of saying to a company, make disclosures to compensate, make sure that you're not telling the truth. Now we're saying make disclosures as a condition precedent of doing business. It's no longer a question of correcting misimpressions that might otherwise exist if the disclosures are not made. You know, anytime we talk about the topic of climate change, I think many listeners are going to going to to hear that and start to predict, I guess, where you fall on the the climate change uh, agenda, I suppose, and try and slot in, you know, uh, uh, interpret your responses through there. So I want to I want to give you a chance to to look at this and say, okay, what should the federal government be doing? I mean, to what extent are we really looking at, at a problem here? Is this something that is so serious that the federal government should say to all its agencies, go ahead, this isn't your primary purpose, but we're going to go ahead and, and, and go through with this? Should this be done? Well, I think there's a very wide disagreement. The majority of scientists are said to be of the situation that latent risks dominate all patent risks, and that we have to move now, notwithstanding the fact that there are no major changes that are clearly attributable to client change. My view about this is actually somewhat the opposite. If there is a great deal of uncertainty, I start looking at patterns, and there are a couple of things about the patterns that I think are worth noting. One is if you actually do direct observation of the temperature changes allegedly driven by carbon dioxide as the primary variable, you see a jaggedy line of one form or another. And over the last 40 years, uh, it has certainly gone up well under one degree centigrade. And there's no sign, at least in the short run, that is the last 10 years, that this rate is increasing. This is perfectly consistent with one of the standard insights that many people accept about global phenomena, which is they turn out to be cyclical in nature as things go up and then they come down. And even in our own lifetime, if you go back to the 1970s, the dominant trope was uh, the growing season is shortened by a month every year. And now it may turn out or a week uh, that we really are going to have a cold street that we won't be able to deal with. If this stuff is cyclical, it's always going to be going up, down, sometime down the other time. And then the question is how many cycles are involved? One of the things that is that you can easily imagine that there are two or three phenomena at work, none of which I could accurately describe, and they have different periods. And then what you do is you do a function in which you sort of, on the sine curve, figure out what you are at time one under this function and at time one under the second function, and you add the two things together, and you could get very sharp peaks and very sharp valleys and periods in which nothing much is going to happen. You have to know what these cycles are about before you can be very confident as to what the next generation of trains are going to be, because essentially, if you go from high, high to low, low, uh, the current situation on the high side is a very poor predictor of the low system that's going to come two, five, 10 or 20 years down the road. So to me, all of this counsels caution before we overcommit ourselves on that. Then there is the problem of how much of this is natural variation and how much of this is human created variation. The recent IP 
IPCC report on the International Panel on Climate Change and so forth is quite emphatic that it regards this as all attributable to carbon dioxide. There are many you know, important scientists who disagree with this. They're in a minority. And the, one of the questions is, do we have cyclical stuff in the historical data or not? So if you look back to the 1991 IPCC report, what it did is it reported two events of notes. One was the medieval warming period and the other was the Little Ice Age. And what this was designed to suggest is that there's huge variations that take place with temperature in a matter of centuries going both up and down. And it cannot be attributable to excess carbon dioxide created by human industry and the like. It has to be attributed to other natural phenomena. Well, these phenomena don't disappear because it turns out um, other people add out carbon dioxide to the area. So the great debate today is can you flatten the earlier period so as to make the recent rise look as though it's a unique phenomenon, at which point it becomes much more closely correlated with the um, carbon dioxide emissions. Well, I don't think, in fact, you can do that. I mean, you go back and you just read the history books. I was reading a very fine book on medieval history by a man named Dan Jones, and he's talking about Rome. And he said they had a great run of climate, um, you know, between, say, 100 and 500 AD, and the crops were abundant and everybody was drinking fine wines and so forth. And then you start to figure out, you know, a thousand years later, all the wineries in northern France are shutting down because it's too cold for them to sustain. Well, I think you have to ask whether this is accurate stuff or not. And as far as I'm concerned, if you know that the wineries have shut down, it's pretty good evidence that they didn't shut down because they didn't want to stay open. They shut down because it was that they couldn't do it. So seeing all these cyclical phenomena, seeing all of the situations of unidentified causes, uh, that you have to do. My own view is you kind of take it a little bit slow before you overcommit to one thing or another. You diversify your energy sources in the face of uncertainty. If you believe that the certainty is far greater, why would you ever diversify? But then you have to say, well, are these technologies going to do the job? And, you know, there have been studies, um, Ben Zyker is fond of citing them, where the EPA says, you know, we do everything that we want and you change global temperatures by you know, two hundredths of a degree centigrade in the next 40 years. I don't know whether those numbers are right, but what it does suggest is that the system is very, very big. And even if you make major changes in human output, it's basically a small fraction of the total amount of greenhouse gases that are out there from all sources. It's also the case that doing it on carbon dioxide is actually controversial because it's the stuff of life, at least in lower concentrations. There are many other pollutants which behave as pollutants, meaning the moment those levels get above zero, they're dangerous. And the question is, is it a better strategy to take after nitrous oxide and sulfur dioxide and so forth than to go after poor old carbon dioxide? And there's a split of opinion on that. So if you take the... uh, opinion of the Biden administration, they are very much in the alarmist camp. Uh, Mr. Carey is that way. Gina McCarthy is that way. And there are a lot of scientists who support them. There are other scientists on the other side whom I tend to agree with more. And I am basically humbled by the difficulty of the problem in the sense that when I hear people making complicated and complex and confident assertions about patterns of causal mechanism, I can't see where those things are coming, one, because I don't understand how it is 
uh, that the particular mechanism could be identified. These are much more difficult patterns than you have, um, for example, in showing it. If you add a bunch of phosphorus into the water, it's going to kill the fish. Well, you know what's going in, you know what the mechanism is, you know the level of tolerations and so forth. This is a chaotic system. And what that means is the system is not indeterminate. It means that it's exactly determinate. It's like any other system, but if there are small changes in the initial conditions, by the time you run through a bunch of iterations, you have no idea where you are within a given space. But even when you call it chaotic, there's something to always remember. The most famous illustrations of a chaotic stuff, the double pendulum, certain mathematical equations, they always have upper and lower bonds. So if you have a double pendulum, the way this thing swings is going to be crazy, crazy. But you know, you know to a certainty that the system is never going to go um, out further than the sum of the two legs put together. A plus B is all it can do because it just can't go any further. So you have radical indeterminacy within the circle and you have complete confidence that nothing could take place out of the circle. So there's at least an argument that has been made is that the United the, the world on global temperatures has to be like the double pendulum. It has to be bound because if it turned out that this thing, once it started to go, it's completely unleashed. Uh, then the meteorites or a thousand other events that happened in the course of history would have essentially completely unsettled the system. So at the macro level, the question is how much stability is there in a system to resist that? The way the thing has been put physically, it's a kind of a nice illustration, is one thing that you do is you have an inverted U, like a McDonald's arch, and you say the Earth is on the top of that thing in terms of its climate. And so it may be a little indentation, but if you move it to the left or to the right, what's going to happen the whole thing's going to fall apart. And the other thing says, don't invert the U, just keep it as a U. And you have something at the bottom and there's a perturbation and it starts to go up one of the sides. Well, the moon that goes up one of the sides, gravity kicks in and starts to go down, pass and back and forth. So the inverted U model is one of, invert, of great instability. Uh, the straight U model is one of high stability and so forth. You have to guess which of these things is more likely. You can draw funny shaped curves with part U and part non-U and so forth. My guess is that the U model is what dominates. So I tend to be look at it very closely, figure out a danger and then fix it. The other people say make strange, immediate and dramatic change right today. Uh, but they're not quite sure what those changes should be. And God forbid, if they're wrong, you'll never be able to undo what they've done. Anytime you make an investment, it's hard to reverse it. Well, that leads me to believe you make multiple small investments rather than one huge big one. But again, like everything else in this area, there's a division. And we know that the Biden people, who they're listening to, and it ain't Richard Epstein. Uh, you've been listening here to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. You can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas over at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and rate this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Catch you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.